Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. I have had two previous in-depth podcasts on chronic fatigue syndrome, one with Dr. Sarah Myhill from the United Kingdom and one with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum here in the U.S. So why a third podcast on this subject? I have personally cared for probably a few thousand patients, adults, with chronic fatigue syndrome, and I can tell you their stories and how it affects them, their family, and myself as their doctor is painful. In comparison, I have only cared for just a few dozen or so young people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And those cases are not only painful, but they're heartbreaking. Today's podcast guest is one of the leading experts on chronic fatigue syndrome in young people. Dr. Peter Rowe is a professor of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and the director of the Children's Chronic Fatigue Clinic. He has published numerous research articles on the subject and probably cared for children for decades with this condition. His clinic is the only one that I'm familiar with that's even dedicated to seeing these young patients who are in such distress. So I am extremely pleased to welcome Dr. Peter Rowe to the podcast. Thank you. Pleased to be here. It's really a pleasure for me, and I'm sure for my listeners. Dr. Rowe, I'm sure so many pediatricians get this question. They come in with their son or their daughter, and they say to the pediatrician, gosh, my child, you seem tired all the time. Is something wrong with them? And I want to ask you, obviously, in seeing the chronic fatigue syndrome in young adults, how you go about making an early diagnosis and what risk factors are you looking at you know, that could potentially help these pediatricians identify these kids before they get into a deeper situation? You know, I started in, in this work back in the early 90s. I was, I was running the um, diagnostic problems clinic here at Hopkins. As we joke, it was house without the cane and the Oxycontin problem. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. But we would see patients that pediatricians had uh, difficulty sorting through. They were somewhere in the gray zone between different subspecialties. And one of the interesting things that came out was that as we looked at these patients back to back with kids who had recurrent fainting, they looked like they were getting into trouble with symptoms in the same situation. So standing still, waiting in line, going shopping in a hot environment, they would get fatigued and lightheaded and have brain fog and sometimes headaches and other symptoms. So I approached my colleague in the electrophysiology uh, program, Hugh Hawkins, and said, Hugh, these guys are just like the fainters, except they don't lose consciousness. And he was intrigued by this because he'd made some observations about fatigue following vasovagal syncope, that it was helpful in the adult ER in distinguishing people who lost consciousness because of a heart block versus a vasovagal faint. The fainters 
who didn't have a rhythm disturbance would be tired for a couple of days after the fainting. And so he was willing to look at these kids. We put them on the tilt table and they had profound circulatory abnormalities and we could reproduce their symptoms. So one of the things when a parent brings a child with intense chronic fatigue in is that we are looking carefully for some evidence of orthostatic intolerance. We tend to find that in close to 100% of the adolescents who have true MECFS. Wow. Okay. We're going we're to get into that a little bit deeper because, yeah, you, you hit the uh, listeners with a lot of really interesting medical stuff. I wanted to ask you slightly a little bit more superficial before we got so deep because it it's really is fascinating. But I think in like, especially in your articles, you've identified a few things. You've identified that women, you know, females are three to four times more likely than men. Yes. Okay. So, I mean, again, I see a lot of young adults also in my practice for various reasons with different things that I do. And a lot of times, it's the young guys that parents are saying, he can't get up in the morning, he's this. So again, I would think from your literature that I'd be a little bit more concerned if it was a female. The other thing you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting, is genetics, that ranging from 20 to 90% of these kids have a family member that's also been diagnosed. Is that correct with chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah, ninety percent is probably a bit high, but um, yeah, you know there is there are a number of studies that show that uh, if you're an identical twin, you're more likely to both have chronic fatigue syndrome than if you're a fraternal twin. There are a number of studies, a big one from the University of Utah, where they have a huge genetics database showing that you're more likely to have a first degree relative that also has the diagnosis. And then we've shown that there's a higher prevalence of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and joint hypermobility, these conditions where you've got laxity of the connective tissues, it's important to recognize that because I think the older literature really focused a lot on the behavioral piece of this. And, you know, you can't control your own connective tissue makeup. So that's that's a heritable component that's... that's. Yeah, we're going to get into that too. I mean, you're, you're touching on all the things that I want the listeners to really learn about. And there's one more thing that's, again, a little bit, I call one of the three main categories from reading your articles, but, and it's the trickiest part. It's the mental health issue. I'm sure in today's society with so much going on, and a more awareness of it that, again, so many parents are worried about, or sometimes they want to deny it, whether or not their child has some form of depression. Picture yourself or the people you're dealing with at John Hopkins. They're seeing 30, 40, 50 kids a day, and they have to sort out who's in danger, who's going to be out of school pretty soon you know, because of this issue. Are these the main things that you would, if you had to give them some bullet points to guide them, is this where you would start or... It begins with uh, knowing the family and taking a clear history, obviously, like everything else in medicine. And, you know, I think with adolescents, you've got to have some help from questionnaires because they can present in a way that you would never suspect that they're depressed. But internally, they've got a lot of self-critical behavior and guilt and so on. So it's important to find those patients who do have depression. But we find that MECFS is distinct from that. It usually you can get a secondary depression if you're not able to keep up with school and activities. Uh, so that's important to look for. But this begins differently than depression. It's, it's distinct from depression in that these are patients who have trouble with exercise. They exercise, by definition, provokes their symptoms. Whereas in kids with depression, we want them to get out and uh, and be, be more active because that makes them feel better. So among so that, the so that would be that, a test essentially. I mean, again, like I'm, I'm trying to get picture the scenario, you know, because I know I went, when I, my kids were younger and we'd go to a pediatrician, you know, you have 
sometimes 15 minutes with them. You know, they're checking your immunizations, this, that too. And then the parent brings up, you know, Dr. Jones, I, I just want to mention to you, you know, John, he seems to sleep a lot. He doesn't, he likes to just lay on his bed and watch, play video games. And he just, you know, he's no interest in school, you know, a couple of things. And like, again, essentially what I think what you're saying is sort of a test would say, hey, mom, get him outside, get him involved in sports. And hopefully that would help. But if he gets worse, then we know there's something. I mean, I, I, don't, I know it might be simplifying it, but I'm just, I'm trying to. I go through a couple of things with them. One, one that is really helpful for differentiating, sorry, differentiating all the other causes of fatigue from ME-CFS is the intensity of the fatigue and the impairment in what they used to be able to do. So if you've got somebody who can no longer participate in sports or is finding it difficult to get going, to get to school, even though they want to be there, then that's helpful information. The other thing is we tell our residents that one of the things they have trouble doing is going shopping. And my line is, if you've got an adolescent that can't tolerate or doesn't want to go to the mall, you've got an organic problem until proven otherwise. <laughs> that would have been me, though. I hate shopping. But I know what you're saying. It's just really, it is really important. You're right. The standing for the long period of time, that, I think that's such a key thing. I mean, I, I'm so yeah. glad you're bringing that up because it it does help differentiate. You know, it goes on to my next question that I wanted to ask you also is that chronic fatigue syndrome is, again, from your articles, the potential underlying or comorbid conditions might be a hundred different conditions. How are pediatricians supposed to be able to handle these complex cases? And if not, where do they start sending these patients? As you mentioned, it was interesting, it was in a, a lecture you gave, like how, you know, some of the patients were, First of all, a lot of doctors, unfortunately, pediatric specialists didn't really see it because they were dealing with their own, you know, like you mentioned, the, the cardiologists were dealing with all these arrhythmia patients and stuff like that too. So, I mean, obviously you have a specialized clinic at Johns Hopkins, which is tremendous for these kids, but maybe in other states, how would you advise them to seek out and to get evaluated so there's a proper evaluation? Here's the puzzle. Here we've got a condition where when we do our quality of life measures, these patients are worse than anyone with cystic fibrosis, eosinophilic gastroenteritis, diabetes, epilepsy. Their function, what they can do each day is worse than those patients. And yet we have one clinic dedicated to this in the entire country. So I think as a profession, we've got to step up. The challenge for the pediatrician in the office is Patients come in with a long list of symptoms because if you've got a circulatory problem or an autonomic problem, it will be multi-system by definition. And so the list of symptoms to plow through, headaches, trouble thinking, lightheadedness, fatigue, inability to exercise, heat intolerance, it's long and it takes a while to get through. So you have to break up the interview into maybe several sessions. But what I tell people is this is a monotonously similar list for the patient who comes to see me from New York or Georgia or Maryland. They didn't compare notes. It's the same deal. If it was really a psychosomatic disorder, you'd have a completely random list of problems, but you don't. These are very classic uh, symptoms that fit with circulatory dysfunction. It's a great point that you're making. You know, and as I mentioned to you, I see a lot of adult chronic fatigue patients. I've seen some children, you know, or young adults. And, you know, I sometimes always tease them. I said, you know, cause they, they're crying in the office. They go, you're my last hope. And I said, I think you're in the right place. I said, I call myself the 10th doctor because most of my patients who are in this situation have seen at least 
nine other doctors, you know, from the neurologist, endocrinologist, rheumatologist. I mean, the whole gamut. So somebody is essentially what you're saying, looking at this as a whole and potentially a circulatory issue and possibly a connective tissue issue. So uh, I think it's a great point. And we do really need to do a lot of work to help these young people. I want to ask you about symptoms because you were, again, giving us some hint of that. But I want to get to one of the symptoms, which, again, you mentioned in your articles, malaise. You know, it's a term used to define chronic fatigue syndrome in adults and in young people. But how do you actually define malaise? It, it, it's, I think it's a tricky term, even in medicine. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't like it as a term, but one of the defining features of this illness is the what's called PEM or post-exertional malaise. That is, it refers to not just fatigue, but a variety of that patient's symptoms of just a flu-like feeling, feeling unwell, headache, lightheadedness, brain fog, all of these things getting worse after the patient exceeds his or her usual level of both physical activity, but even cognitive activity, like studying for a test or the SATs. We've also shown that PEM can be provoked by a tilt table test or prolonged upright posture. And there is some evidence that we've generated in research studies that even putting a strain on the limbs Uh, Like with a straight leg raise, we've done a couple of studies looking at that. That is capable somehow, we don't know the mechanism, of also provoking some of this exacerbation and symptoms. We would send people to our physical therapy colleagues, for example, and they'd call me the next day saying, am I supposed to feel this exhausted after the guy just was doing range of motion? Right. It's like a person who's out of shape, but it's extreme. Thing. That, that's a great point. I mean, I, again, so many things you're bringing up, Dr. Rowe, I think are so important because these things can border on the subtle to, you know, being dismissed as just like, oh, you know, he's just a little tired, you know, or whatever. I want to ask you about some other symptoms, which you mentioned and we are important. Poor sleep. How do you define that? Teenagers, a lot of them either like to go to sleep really late, playing video games and being on the computer. Some of them don't like to get up till one o'clock in the afternoon if they could. And obviously now with COVID, there's <laughs> a lot of, you know, you know, they're not getting up so early in the morning anymore, I guess. I don't know. So let's just talk about the sleep for a second. What would it set off alarm bells to you if the parent tells you, you know, Jane will sleep the whole weekend, barely get up? What's your tolerance point? You know, the sleep abnormalities in this condition can be quite variable. You'll get the occasional patient who's really hypersomnolent. I had one young girl sent to me a couple of years ago. She was sleeping 20 hours a day, and there was nothing we could find to improve that. Over time, she's now down to about 14 hours a day and gradually improving. But hypersomnolence can be there. It's just not the most common form. Often, they feel what people have termed tired but wired. So they're exhausted but at the end of the day have enormous trouble getting to sleep. And some of them really have their sleep schedules flipped and they can't do much about that. So we'll see all ranges. Usually these are not the patients who are willfully staying up and playing video games. That's different. Yeah. And what about like narcolepsy? Is that, I mean, do you see that in some of the young kids? We have very few, but we have a couple of patients with narcolepsy, but they're usually easier to detect. What about, let's, let's talk about the cognition issues. When the kids that you're seeing are saying, gosh, I I just can't, you know, I try to study. I can't remember anything or, you know, their grades start to drop. Maybe they were an A student at one point and now they're a C or D and the mom and the dad are going crazy. What sets off alarms to you in those areas that this could be related to CFS? The typical 
problems with cognition and MECFS look very similar to what you'd see with attention deficit disorder without the hyperactivity. Usually these are patients who had no history of that as students in elementary and middle school. But as they get the chronic fatigue syndrome, they start having what they term brain fog. And their executive function problems, difficulties with concentration, short-term memory, and retention. So I'll ask them, do you have to sit down and read a paragraph over three or four times before it sinks in? And then five minutes later, it's gone. And these guys, they're uh, patients who want to be in school and want to be doing well, but can't. So it's not a willful process. They'd have a lot of difficulty with reading, retention, concentration. Is there a specific test? You know, it's like almost unfortunate, like, you know, with Alzheimer's patients, you know, there's certain, I know they gave it to President Trump, the test. <laughs> Are there certain tests that they, that a parent or the doctors could know about? You know, like they give the cognitive test that's not super extensive to screen for this. Is anything you recommend? We just use a paper questionnaire, something called the Wood Mental Fatigue Inventory. It's a nine-item thing about which cognitive symptoms you got, and they include things like finding the right words or processing conversation. Looking at the score on that can be quite helpful. People have done other more formal studies. There was one done by some colleagues, some very good researchers at the New York Medical College, Julian Stewart and Marvin Meadow and their team. And they showed that when people are lying flat, doing a thing called the NBAC test, where you're recognizing a thing on the screen, one or two or three items back, uh, and so it looks at your correct responses and your reaction time. They found that MECFS patients and their controls were the same lying supine, but as they raised them upright on the tilt table and the MECFS patients were not getting as much blood flow to the brain, we think, they started having more errors and more problems. That's really fascinating. Yeah, that's really interesting. Sometimes they can sort of muster the energy to complete one of the cognitive tests adequately, but the PET scans and the functional MRI scans are showing that they need to recruit more areas of the brain in order to do the same amount of work. And that's part of why we think they get post-exertional malaise after cognitive tasks. I'm just thinking when you're talking about these things too, I've had some patients in their really early 20s and they barely could get through college. A lot of times they have to take semesters off. And one of them, I know he's really a bright, bright young man and he wants to become a dentist. And the studying part for the boards and everything is just such a struggle with this. It's just, you know, it's, it's so elusive. And as a doctor, sometimes you feel like, but you have nothing to offer to help them help with that concentration. You don't want to just give them stimulants and stuff like that. Let me ask you about some physical signs that a pediatrician or a parent could point out. And I, I find them interesting, but I also find them elusive because you don't really understand why it's happening. Let's say, for example, facial pallor. You mentioned this in your articles, but again, a lot of these kids are not anemic. So any reason why you think they have this facial pallor? We think that uh, because so many of them have orthostatic intolerance, the feature that causes that is that they have, when they stand up or when they're upright, they're pooling a lot more blood than usual in the lower half of the body and just not circulating it back up. So one of the things we recognize, not in all of them, but in a large proportion, is peripheral acrocyanosis. They just have this sort of ruddy purple skin in the dependent limbs that has very poor capillary refill. If you press on the skin, it's seven, eight seconds before you get any refill. Oh, that's a great tip too so, for clinicians to test for the kids. Uh, yeah, so it's easier to recognize the uh, acrocyanosis in the summer and when they've got their socks off. So that's an important uh, physical finding. 
The other thing is that they almost always have some provocation of symptoms if they're just standing still. So in everybody in the clinic, we do a 10-minute passive standing test where they're leaning back against the wall, feet sort of six inches away, and we've got a blood pressure cuff on them for five minutes supine, 10 minutes upright, and another couple of minutes supine again after the test. And while that can recognize uh, postural tachycardia syndrome, which is a common circulatory problem in these patients, you're less likely to identify the hypotension. That tends to occur later during tilt testing. Oh, so they get the, so the tachycardia is what you're going to see. The heart rate's going to go up. Yeah, that'll, that will be what you see in the first 10 minutes, plus provocation of their typical symptoms. They're standing there for 10 minutes, which ought to be a source of boredom for the average healthy person. They feel something. They get tired, more lightheaded, more foggy. They might get a headache or nausea. They might start sweating. It's really quite Impressive to see. I always have the parents in the room for that because I want them to see how symptomatic these patients get just with standing still. How long does it take for their blood pressure to drop? That could take like 40 minutes or something? Well, in the early days of doing the tilt testing, the median time to drop your blood pressure was about 29 minutes. Wow. But they're quite symptomatic all the way through. You can you can occasionally see it very early on. So when you're doing a standing test, you've got to be on the alert for when they get really pale looking and report that they feel very hot. That on tilt testing is a sign that they're about to uh, have a drop in blood pressure. Do we know why they're having this postural orthostatic hypotension? I mean, aside from I know there's like that Erlo-Stanlos, which we'll get, well, I want to get into that in a very in-depth in a little bit, but is there any reason why, again, we get to etiology that is it like what they call these dysautonomias? Is that, you know, I mean, we, you know, in diabetes, again, I remember my training because diabetes causes so many problems, but that it affects the circulation, you know, and of course there's some rare genetic diseases that cause these kind of dysautonomias, but is there something else that we're missing? And is there anything else on a blood you can measure that's going to tip off this postural orthostatic hypotension? We have not figured out what is triggering it. It often occurs after an apparent viral infection, but it can occur after a variety of other triggers. And nobody really knows exactly what's uh, causing it. It has been some interest in whether autoantibodies could be potentially the cause. And some groups have found that if you have uh, antibodies that block the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor, so preventing vasoconstriction, or that act as stimulatory antibodies on the beta receptors that can drive up heart rate, they can reproduce the physiology, at least in a laboratory setting, when they introduce the serum from patients into the uh, vascular model that they've got. But we don't know how, what proportion of people have autoantibodies as the trigger, and there may be some other factor. I just want the listeners to be aware of this because, again, it's fascinating and interesting is the hypermobile joints. Yeah. So that's another thing on the physical examination that you want to look for. Is there anything in particular? I was looking at some, I think, the photos that you had. Like I had a patient the other day, they could move their thumb. I can't even do it with my thumb. Their thumb goes all the way backwards. And is it also things like where you just have them bend forward and they can, their palms can actually easily touch the floor? We have everybody do what's called a Byton score, named after Peter Byton, who is a South African uh, geneticist who's interested in these disorders of connective tissue. And it's fairly quick to do. You have their hand flat on the surface, and with uh, the other hand, they bring their pinky back, and you're looking for, you get a point on each side for getting past 90 degrees of your 
pinky hyperextension. You get a point on each hand if you flex your wrists and try and bring your thumb down to meet the flexor aspect of the forearm. You get a point on each side for more than 10 degrees of hypermobility at the elbows and also at the knees. And then the ninth point is the one you mentioned of palms flat on the floor. What about the Gorland sign where your tongue touches your nose? I, I was worried that either you have a long nose, or you have a long tongue. I don't know. Was that a... Yeah, so some of it is the <laughs> ligaments that are holding the tongue in place. They can flip their eyelids inside out. They often have widened, thinned out scars. They heal poorly if they have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and joint hypermobility. We found you're going to see a certain amount of joint hypermobility in the average teenager. About 20% of them will have a Biden score of four or higher. Those are going to be your gymnasts, your swimmers, your dancers, the kids who for whom joint laxity is an advantage in their activity. Right, right. Uh, but when we compared our healthy controls to our CFS patients, we were seeing rates of joint hypermobility closer to 60%. Right. Uh, and so if you've got chronic fatigue syndrome, you've got a three and a half odds ratio of having joint hypermobility. Let's talk about some key diagnostic testing. And I'd like to start with the minimum. Again, a pediatrician seeing these patients, things like iron, B12, I assume like gliadin or different celiac autoantibodies. You know, something else that struck me also, which I don't think is done enough, is assessment for adrenal insufficiency. Because it's not as easy as thyroid. I think it's trickier. Is that something like right away you feel should be clearly evaluated. And I'm just curious how you evaluate, because I have my evaluation with my chronic fatigue adult patients, because I, I think adrenal insufficiency gets missed a lot. And, you know, people just, they forget about that little organ that sits over your kidneys, right? you know, and it's quite important because, you know, it's like a stress organ. You know, when you're under stress, physical stress, emotional stress, that gland is shooting out key hormones. So I'm just curious, what do you look for? I mean, is that something just right off the bat you'd look at? The basic screen that we all recommend is the kind of thing that pediatricians know about when they investigate children for failure to thrive. You're just looking for any evidence of organ dysfunction anywhere in the body. So a CBC with differential, a comprehensive metabolic panel, some measure of inflammation, a SED rate or a CRP, and a urinalysis. And then along with the things like iron studies and B12, as you mentioned, and a celiac screen. That's the minimum. That's very basic, though. Very you know, that, basic. That, that could miss a lot, you know, that would. But with adrenal insufficiency, you should see a drop in sodium. So if you've got a low sodium, that might help you. The later findings with adrenal insufficiency in kids are the elevation in potassium and the skin bronzing. We had a girl that came up from Alabama a while ago. And she had total body bronzing with no tan lines. That was a suspicious finding for adrenal insufficiency. The problem was she, she'd been going to the tanning beds and, and, and we lost that physical finding. I know, you know, it's so funny you say that. I had a patient once, she was in her early 20s, and I was examining her in the office. And her face was pale. It was the wintertime here in New York. And I start to examine her abdomen, and it was all tan. So again, my medical mind, you know, starts going over to it. So I, I have to mention to her, I said, were you in the sun somewhere? You know, because again, it was the wintertime in New York. I said, because your, your abdomen is all tan. And she started like, like smiling and laughing. She goes, I'm from Florida originally. She goes, I can't stand when my body is not tan. So she was <laughs> uh, going to a tanning place. But what about cortisol? Like, say, like what I do with my adult patients, I do that AM early serum cortisol and aldosterone. Because again, you know, when you get from the lab, it's going to have a low number and the lab doesn't flag it. If you have a, a serum cortisol, you know, for example, aldosterone of four or five or one, that's very low. 
um, right? And yeah, so we we see less of that in pediatrics. Okay, but if you know if you so got, it's not as helpful then. Okay, yeah. And the other thing is, it's often tough to get these guys going early in the morning to get to the lab, in part because that's when blood volume is at its lowest, and many parents tell you that it's very hard to get them. Uh, out of bed and get going in the morning. So the early morning cortisol often uh, is a bit more of a challenge, but if we're really suspicious of- uh, Basically craving salt, for example, I'm sure yeah. you uh, want to know that. But uh, the other thing is that early in the investigations in the early 90s, there were a number of reports of low 24-hour urinary cortisol levels in adults with ME-CFS. And they wondered if this was primarily an adrenal problem and it led to a couple of studies, randomized trials of low-dose cortisol supplementation. And in general, there was a sort of 5% improvement in quality of life. But by two months into this, everybody had suppressed adrenal glands. So you took something that was not a life-threatening condition and you created this life-threatening adrenal insufficiency. So none of us use uh, cortisol supplementation to help these patients get better. But you do use um, aldosterone-like substances like Florinef yeah, yeah. and stuff. Florinef we use a lot, Yeah, but not, not hydrocortisone. Yeah. All right, let me ask you about infections. And unfortunately, this whole thing with the looming COVID epidemic is causing another whole wave of this. But prior to COVID, were there certain infections that got your attention? I mean, if a parent said to you, my son or daughter had a, seemed like a terrible case of mononucleosis, or is there, I'm just curious too, is there any other infections that, a viral or if they traveled abroad that would get more attention as to triggering this issue? Yeah, I, it can be caused by or preceded by so many different infections, parvovirus, B19. Uh, the most common is obviously infectious mono caused either by EBV or mm -hmm. CMV. And there was a nice study by Ben Katz's group in Chicago where they looked at something like 300 adolescents who had acute infectious mono, and they followed them over two years, 7% at the end of a year, 14% at the end of six months, and 4% at the end of two years. So that was a common but not the only infection that could trigger this. And risk factor for getting ME-CFS after mono was the intensity of the initial infection. It's turning out that in COVID, that's not the case. We're seeing adolescents and young adults who had very, very mild symptoms, never even went to the hospital, but lost their sense of taste and smell for six weeks. From the very beginning, had horrific lightheadedness, tachycardia, and fatigue. Wow. Wow. What about also genetic testing? I mean, again, in your kind of clinic, John Hopkins has a world-famous genetic department. Has anything come up with what they call the SNPs or any kind of genetic testing that any type of common denominator with these, these kids? I mean, I just wanted to think too, I guess I'm jumping around a little bit, but it's like in fibromyalgia, I interviewed Ann Oaklander from Harvard. It was interesting. They picked up a lot of what's called small fiber neuropathy, in, which can be caused by a lot of things, infections, but there's probably some genetic susceptibility to it. So is there anything genetic wise that your group has picked up or... Even with the hypermobile patients, there's no gene for the hypermobile type of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. If you've got more of the classical type or one of the other forms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, yeah, those tests are available. People have looked at uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, and you find things in the literature here and there, but nothing that's been consistent, nothing that we do at a practical level to test folks. And what about also, let's say, the cardiology aspect, too? Like, I'm sure you guys have looked at echocardiograms. 
you ever do a 24 hour like blood pressure or halter monitors on these kids? Acacia will do the halter. It's rare for them to have elevations in blood pressure. They almost are all are in the bottom quartile for blood pressure. And it's been shown in population-based studies that if you look at adults, the people in the bottom quartile of the blood pressure distribution tend to have more fatigue and other complaints that overlap with ME-CFS. You don't see any cardiac output issues. I mean, that would be pretty astounding, right? Where their ejection fraction is off or something. Nope. Their echoes are usually normal. Uh, We might see a little bit of mitral valve prolapse, the physiology of mitral valve prolapse syndromes really overlaps a lot with all of these orthostatic disorders. And that could be connective tissue. I want to ask you then also too about, I mean, this is like startling in some ways too, like certain things that that would trigger this. Like as you, you talked about, we talked about infections, but like even immunizations, and this is obviously a very touchy subject because we want our kids immunized. We're really hoping obviously with COVID there's going to be a, a safe, efficacious vaccine. Why do you think vaccines can sometimes trigger this We can see it after surgery, after trauma, after concussions, vaccines sometimes. And I think it's stimulating the immune system, I mean, in some way. Maybe. maybe. I don't think anyone's really sure what's going on, but I, I think of it more as the last straw. There's a last straw that kicks them into gear. And I think the speculation about uh, HPV vaccines, for example, which temporarily have been associated with the onset of ME-CFS in some patients, but you know, you don't see a huge rise in the Scandinavian countries where they have better record keeping of ME-CFS following the introduction of HPV. So I think of it as a last push. And we certainly don't discourage people from getting that vaccine. What about also toxin exposure. Now, it's interesting. I'm seeing a lot of cases in New York and adults with mold exposure. I mean, it's something that was really underappreciated. And somebody in your area in Maryland, Richard Schumacher, who I think he did a lot of really interesting work for a family practitioner. He kind of broke through some, what would we call it, glass windows. A lot of these patients were thought to be crazy, but they have so many symptoms that are overlap with CFS in adults. So is there anything where you found, again, my also background is in allergy and immunology, that where you found out some kid was living in a really moldy home or something of that, you know, that was really striking. There are occasional anecdotes that you read about among adults, but we haven't recognized that much in the children. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned about temperature where I believe in hot weather more than cold that again, it must have to do with vasodilation. Is that why it's like a hot day? They're sitting, they used to be standing on a line somewhere. Right. I think that's that's a classic one that they're waiting in line for the amusement park ride and then and then they get lightheaded and feel sick. Uh, But, you know, we've seen it in during marching band practice in August when it's hot and they're uh, upright. So we look for these conditions where heat stress is a big factor. Some of the kids will tell you they can go swimming in the ocean and they're fine in the air conditioned hotel room. But that walk in 90 degree heat between the ocean and the hotel is tough. I think you just brought up a really important point because I was thinking about this the other night before I was going to even interview you. You know, when, when you say, like, how do we keep these kids active and moving? And it sounds like swimming, if they like it, would be the ideal thing because you said they're in a, maybe a cooler temperature. They're not upright. And you would really get an idea because I was going to ask you the question, like, what's your threshold for overtraining? Because it's really crazy. Sometimes I had this one patient, I'll never forget. He was actually from South America who swore he had chronic fatigue syndrome and seemed very legitimate. But this guy was an elite athlete. I mean, he literally was running marathons. 
my jaw just dropped. Like, how could you run a marathon and have chronic fatigue syndrome? It just, it seems like silly, but I didn't say that. So are you seeing like with the kids, one of them before they say, oh, I was a mile or a runner on the track team, but now I, I can't recover. Can they actually push through and do it? And they just, the recovery is so brutal or should they not be able to even complete that several mile run? The uh, athletic overtraining or whatever you call it, athletic underperformance syndrome really looks a lot like ME-CFS. They get lightheaded, they feel foggy, and they can't replicate their exercise. I remember one swimmer that I was asked to see who had been a medalist at the Olympics, then got mono, and she would report that she could do one practice The next day, she could do half of the practice because of the post-exertional malaise, and the third day, she had to take off. So there was no way she could train at the level of her competitors, and she just wasn't competitive in the pool until we recognized that she had a couple of things. One is that she had a milk protein hypersensitivity, a delayed non-IgE-mediated thing, which we find in about 30% of our patients. Say that again. I'm fascinated by that. Milk protein... It's an IgG? It's a non-IgE mechanism. In other words, they don't have immediate symptoms. It's delayed by about two to four hours. This was described originally in eosinophilic gastroenteritis by by, uh, Dr. Kevin Kelly, who's at uh, CHOP in Philadelphia now. But Kevin noticed that these kids with eosinophilic gastroenteritis often had a food protein that they reacted to, but it was a delayed reaction two to four hours. He used to teach us that if you've got an asthmatic who wakes up with burning esophageal pain at two in the morning, ask them what they had for dessert. Was it a bowl of ice cream? Did they have milk before bedtime? And he described a triad of symptoms that included epigastric pain, reflux, and early satiety in these patients. And about half of the ones that meet those criteria also have recurrent aphthous ulcers. And we found that for some reason, we're seeing a higher prevalence of this in the chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And when we get them off milk, they feel better. They don't always recognize that milk is bad for them because of this delay. You know, they might have milk on their cereal at at breakfast and then at lunchtime, they're starting to feel ill. So they might associate it with whatever they're eating at lunchtime. But when we tell them we want to test this by taking them off all milk products for two weeks, they want to go for their last supper to the cheesecake factory. (laughs) Don't blame them. It's very good there. You know, everything you're saying too, also with this delayed exhaustion or depletion, it almost sounds like the mitochondrial dysfunction in the adult chronic fatigue syndrome stuff. And I know Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, who's done a lot of work in that area, and Sarah Myhill in Britain, they are just, you know, it's just so hard to test for all this stuff. But do you think that's an issue? I mean, it's almost like the battery is running out of energy. So there are a variety of theories about that. And uh, people are intensely investigating that at a scientific level. Clinically, there's a little bit of overlap with some of the late presentations of mitochondrial myopathies, but not much. We don't see elevations in lactate and pyruvate and CPK in these patients. So if there's a mitochondrial inefficiency, it's pretty subtle. And we had tried to explore that a bit informally with our patients, putting them on trials of carnitine and riboflavin and so on. We just didn't see any improvements. 
So the typical mitochondrial cocktail wasn't getting these patients better. There's still some controversy about that, and people disagree, I think, because we don't have great measures. Yeah, of, it's of, very uh, hard to, right? There's like to measure ATP production in cells, whatever. There's just, you know. People are looking at it in uh, NIH-funded studies now, looking at the mitochondrial uh, responses or energy responses in immune cells as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of interest, but, but still no consensus. Let's move on to the whole idea of orthostatic intolerance. And as you mentioned, it's present in a high proportion of patients, young patients, especially with CFS, which is probably overlooked by doctors. Can you explain a little bit for us, again, the distinction between the postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, versus what you describe as the neurally mediated hypotension as far as um, you know, what a clinician or a parent or somebody should be looking at, obviously, heart rate, blood pressure, and potential causes. Yeah, so it's important, I think, because adolescents often don't recognize that lightheadedness on standing is not normal, right? They think everybody has it. And so they don't always recognize what lightheadedness is. So if you ask them, do you get lightheaded? No, but I get a head rush every time I stand up. Well, that's lightheadedness in, in my book. Uh, but it's very important to ask them specifically, how do you do in these settings where you're standing for a long time? So we'll ask them, how do you do in any kind of reception, any religious uh, service, standing in line, shopping is key, as I mentioned earlier. And a really good one that combines both heat stress and standing is a shower. And one of my first patients, the grandmother, was sort of the matriarch of the family. Why is he doing the, all these tests on you? And the girl said, well, he was impressed that I had to lie down for 20 minutes after a shower. And the grandmother says, everybody knows you have to lie down for 20 minutes after a shower. So the whole family had uh, hereditary orthostatic intolerance. Oh, really? It was just a family thing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, people get used to these things as being normal, but they're not. So POTS or postural tachycardia syndrome was not really, it's been around since medical writings on the Civil War. It was called effort syndrome or soldier's heart, but it was renamed this by Ron Schondorf, who's in Montreal now, and Phil Lowe at the Mayo Clinic in their autonomic program, they called it postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's now defined as a heart rate increase of 30 beats in adults, 40 in kids in the first 10 minutes of standing. And it has to be associated with chronic orthostatic symptoms like lightheadedness, brain fog, headache, nausea, that sort of thing. Uh, and some of the symptoms are due to lack of brain blood flow, lightheadedness and syncope, obviously, and cognitive dysfunction. And some are due to this exaggerated catecholamine response, trying to get blood back up from the lower half of the body. So they'll get uh, some orthostatic dyspnea. So they're short of breath when they're upright. They can get palpitations. They can get this nervousness. They can have hyperhidrosis, and even nausea. Some of the symptoms are lack of blood for the brain, and others are due to this hyperadrenergic response. So in comparison, the neural-mediated hypotension, that's, I think you mentioned earlier, that the heart rate doesn't change, but the blood pressure drops? Think of it as synonymous with the physiology of vasovagal syncope. We stopped using the vasovagal syncope term because not all of the patients had fainted in day-to-day -day life. So I, I would tell the a referring pediatrician that the patient had this pattern on the tilt table test and they'd say, well, they've never fainted. So we started calling it neurally mediated hypertension 
as a variant that would accommodate the physiology. But those kids are symptomatic from the beginning of when you put the table up. There's also a large group, pediatrics, we see about 95% of the patients with obvious uh, circulatory problems. In the adults, they were only seeing about 40%. But any adult is usually quite symptomatic if you put them on the tilt table test. And some really nice work done by some Dutch cardiologists, Franz Visser and Linda Van Kampen, where they used a probe looking at uh, total blood flow to the brain. They would measure 20 seconds of a Doppler on each internal carotid and each vertebral artery. So it took about a minute to collect this information. It's about 60% of their adult patients. They had a huge study of 429 individuals with ME-CFS. 60% of them had normal heart rate and blood pressure responses to 30 minutes upright, but they still had a 24% reduction in total brain blood flow when they were upright compared to just 7% in healthy people. So it was over three times the reduction, even though they had we might have, people might have said, well, you have orthostatic symptoms, but your heart rate and blood pressure are fine. See you later. And that would have been really undercalling the problem. The ones who have POTS are closer to 28, 29% reductions in brain blood flow when they're upright. They've even had some patients with what was diagnosed as psychogenic pseudosyncope for these loss of consciousness episodes. Those people, when they were tilted, had a 40% reduction in brain blood flow. Wow. I would defy anyone to call that psychogenic. 100%. Well, when do you think patients need the tilt table test versus just doing the, the standing in the office? I mean, why, why, does, why do you go to that more confirmation or? Yeah, some people like that level of confirmation. I'm comfortable enough that I don't think I've sent somebody for a tilt test in a decade. We only do it in our research studies if we want to confirm things. But I think you can get an enormous amount from this 10-minute passive standing test. It's cheap. You can do it in the clinic with an automated blood pressure cuff, and you can see the provocation of symptoms yourself rather than relying on somebody. And the tilt tests are like $1,500. So again, it's, it's much more economical. And we would see early on that these patients would have days of worse symptoms following the test. We learned to abort that exacerbation by giving them two liters of uh, saline right after the tilt test, and they would leave feeling better than when they came in, which emphasized the point about you really have to watch your fluid and salt intake. That's going to be important to making you feel better. Yeah, and I think that's really compassionate of you because you know sometimes also, I remember even an allergy when they used to do all these challenges and sting tests, you know, it's like the mad scientist, you know, you, you traumatize people for life going to doctors from this. I want to ask you one other thing that might be a little bit out there, but it's, it's really kind of fascinating because it's getting a lot of momentum is this whole idea of mast cell activation syndrome. I'm seeing this a lot more. You know, I didn't recognize it. I, I knew about mastocytosis because that was again part of my training, but those cases are rare. But, you know, this mast cell activation syndrome is really fascinating because it overlaps with CFS and some other like this chronic mold conditions. What I find interesting, though, too, is that to me, there's a simple test also because I love simplicity. And, you know, when I was in my fellowship training in New York at Columbia, we used to do the first thing we did before we ever at that time skin tested patients is we used to stroke their back with a blunt tongue blade just to see. And it was called dermatographia. And, you know, again, our teaching back then was like, Oh, this is a benign condition, but you know, this is why, you know, you get urticaria or, you know, your skin tests are so reactive. But now I'm thinking about, and I've looked at the literature on this, it's like considered one of the top three signs and symptoms with mast cell activation, because it's the only way we can see it without obviously stimulating a mast cell in the gut or whatever. 
What's your thought about that? Have you looked at that at all with some of these young uh, people? Well, so we were kind of interested in this allergic contribution from the work that we'd done with Kevin Kelly on the milk protein hypersensitivity. I heard a couple of talks by Larry Afrin, who has been one of the clinical leaders in this. And Larry's a terrific clinician who just uh, has been incredibly helpful educating the rest of us because of his long experience looking at these patients. He would say that they'd had 20 years often of vague allergic and inflammatory conditions. We think, at least in our group, we can identify mast cell mediators that are at an excessive level in at least 10% of our chronic fatigue syndrome patients. So that's an elevation in chromogranin A, an elevation in plasma history. What about tryptase? Tryptase is almost always normal unless they've got the hereditary uh, tryptasemia gene. Yes, right. Alpha tryptasemia. Right. But we have a whole lot of people where I haven't been able to confirm anything because Mm. getting the mast cell mediators, as you know. Very hard. That's what I like doing the dermatographic test because it's, I mean, nothing's exact, but like between that, you know, and now... It's interesting, this mast cell, like as Dr. Afrin has brought up, the, the overlap between Erlos Danlos and mast cell activation. So all of a sudden you have a person with hypermobile joints, stretchy skin, plus positive dermatographism. A lot of things are starting to add up. You know, it's like, it's really going back to our old clinical days where we used to examine patients very carefully without all the sophisticated tools. I think there is something to that. I, I'd like to ask you one other thing too. What else do they get? hemosiderin, like those dark spots on their knees and shins, some of these kids. That's the classical form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. They're uh, prone to excessive uh, venous pooling and early varicosities. I'm not sure. I think the vessels are just fragile. I think it leaks out. I'm not 100% sure that we know the physiology, but it's not there when they're teenagers. I have a great picture I use where the teenage girl with classical EDS has normal shins. The mother has what look like big bruises over her patella and along the shins. And the grandfather has the entire shin with hemocytor wow. deposition. So I think it takes some time to develop. Really good point. I mean, because, you know, as clinicians, sometimes we're so quick, oh, that doesn't exist. They don't have it gone. But look at the family. I always tell people all the time on this podcast, it's like, you know, you want 23 and me. Again, you want to keep it simple, just get a really good history from your parents and your grandparents. You know, it's the same DNA in there, you know. Well, I'll tell you, in light of that point, we had a girl that I was struggling with. She had terrible chronic fatigue syndrome, really hadn't been able to get to school from 10th grade on. She would try one community college course each semester, but she'd fade out halfway through. She just didn't have the energy. She had confirmed postural tachycardia syndrome. And I do a pretty careful neurologic examination on everybody. And I repeated it every time. Six year in, she gets a positive Hoffman sign, which the neurosurgeons refer to as a Babinski of the upper limb. You sort of flick the end of the third finger and you're looking for flexion of the thumb and first finger. And it's not something I remember ever being taught about. So I learned it from the neurosurgeons. And this girl had a positive Hoffman sign. So we got an MRI of her neck. And the MRI of the neck showed congenital cervical spinal stenosis. The normal AP diameter of the canal ought to be 13 millimeters or more. Hers was eight all the way along. And she had a disc bulge that in you or me might have been inconsequential, but there was no space for that disc bulge. So the uh, spine surgeon said, I don't know anything about your fatigue or your tachycardia, but we need to give you a disc replacement because if you get into a car accident, you'll get a whiplash and some further neurologic injury. Well, that was all she needed. 
uh, within two months, she took a job as a dog walker. Six months later, she was taking a job out in the Colorado Rockies, taking people out on horse rides. And she's been absolutely fine for the six years since. Those are the kind of cases I, I love to hear about. And I'm sure listeners, it's just, I mean, obviously it could be one in a million, but it that could change somebody's life. Let me just finish that one. Back to the family history point is the real history that should have led us to get the MRI sooner before the pathological reflexes was that the mother had had cervical stenosis and had two operations, one at 28 and the other in her early 30s. So the family history of cervical stenosis was there and we just didn't know what to do. Well, that's still tricky, but they were saying for a while, they thought a lot of CFS in adults was due to some type of cervical stenosis. That was like a big thing for a while and then it faded out. Do you, now Chiari syndrome, I don't remember, is it in young adults that what it's called when it's, you know, they have the stenosis? There are a couple of really good papers by uh, neurosurgeon Dan Hefez, who was in Chicago, now in Milwaukee. And Dan was being referred people with fibromyalgia who must have had abnormal neurologic examinations. He does an incredibly precise, meticulous neurologic examination and careful uh, imaging studies. And he found that a fair number of these patients met classic criteria for myelopathy. And he was unfairly accused of saying that uh, you could treat fibromyalgia with a neurosurgical procedure. He never said anything like that. That was a sort of straw man argument tossed at him. What he said was that people who have these diagnoses of both MECFS and fibromyalgia, if you look carefully for classic signs of myelopathy, you might find a mix of either Chiari malformation or cervical stenosis. The Chiari patients we've seen typically have occipital headaches. They have trouble looking up. That jams the cerebellar tonsils down further into the foramen magnum. They might have nystagmus, they might have an absent gag reflex, an abnormal Romberg. They've usually got something, but the occipital headaches are the giveaway. And then the converse is that if you look at patients who have diagnosed Chiari malformation, about 65% of them will have a lot of chronic fatigue. So there's an overlap symptomatically. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a predisposing risk factor for Chiari. They get Chiari malformation more commonly than others. And then the other thing in the Ehlers-Danlos group you've got to watch for is that they've got such thin duras that they can get spontaneous CSF leaks and get an acquired Chiari physiology because they lose CSF support of the brain. Do you think an MRI of the brain and uh, well, maybe the cervical spine is, is fairly important in, in a lot of these kids? You know, or We don't do it routinely, but we look very carefully for some of the features. Like if you've got ligamentous laxity at the skull base, those patients often say their head feels heavy and unsupported and going over bumps in the car can cause worse symptoms. They usually will tell you that moving their neck around is associated with symptoms. And I've tried to suggest that in the patients who are not responding to the usual treatments of orthostatic intolerance or allergies or mast cell problems, uh, that you want to look for these problems at the skull base. The cervical stenosis patients usually have something wrong on their neurologic exam if you do it carefully. All right. Well, I want to get to treatment. So there are several treatments that are what's called first line, again, in your paper. So I want to get sort of an idea of how you decide. You mentioned about, uh, obviously, salt ingestion or IV saline. One of the other things we talked about is fludrocortisone, better known as Florinef, which raises the aldosterone. You also mentioned beta blockers and mydrin, which is a vasoconstrictor. In that subset of treatments, 
all of them, you mentioned your paper, first line. How do you decide? You don't obviously don't want to treat multiple ways, I assume. What's your way of approaching these patients when you start to put them on medications? I like to individualize it, but let me contrast that with the more algorithmic approach, which might be easier for people as they're starting off. The guys at the Mayo Clinic in pediatrics have said, everybody with postural tachycardia syndrome should get either mitodrine or a beta blocker as the first line agent. And whichever one they didn't use first would be the next one they'd use. And then they might go to Flornef, and then there are a few other ones that they don't use very much. So in, in thinking about how to pick the first line medication, I'll try and individualize. And so we had these two daughters of one of our nurses. They used to fight to see who got to drink the pickle juice when the pickles were gone <laughs> oh, as a reflection of their salt appetite. Or the, <laughs> or the boy who had the, the salt shaker at his bedstand and would just put salt on his hand and lick it. Those kids were going to get Florinef to help with sodium reabsorption. The patient who has a high resting heart rate, let's say it's 95, I'm probably going to treat that patient with a beta blocker first. The one who's got a resting blood pressure around 90 is going to get Florinef or Mitodrine to build that blood pressure up. You really don't want to give that one a beta blocker to start with. Right. Is there a specific beta blocker you like, by the way? I've just gotten used to using a Tenolol and it comes in a 25 milligram tablet. I start them on a half a tablet in the morning and then every few days go up by a half tablet, aiming for max of somewhere around one milligram of a Tenolol for every kilogram of body weight. So rarely do you need to go above 50. You don't have to go too high, right? Mm -hmm. Satish Raj, one of the leading contributors in autonomic dysfunction, subtitled one of his papers about propranolol or beta blockers for POTS. He said, less is more. And that's a good guideline. You can create increased fatigue and lightheadedness if you give anybody too much of a beta blocker. You're really trying to zero in on the sweet spot. What about, um, okay, that's really helpful. That's really good. Uh, What about also IVIG? You know, they've used it for fibromyalgia with young people, some amazing results. Again, Anne Oakland has published on that. And, he, and you, I think you mentioned in your articles too that there's been some response you know, with these patients. There's only one pediatric IVIG trial I'm aware of. And that was done by a person named Kathy Rowe, no relation to me, in Melbourne, Australia. Kathy's a longtime CFS expert for adolescents. Really? In 1997, she did a trial with a gram per kilo of IVIG monthly for three months versus placebo. It was a very well-designed trial, and by six months, the IVIG group was doing better on a kind of global well-being scale than the placebo recipients. But because there were sort of more mixed results in the adults, nobody has replicated that study, and nobody has been willing to fund replication studies. So it's not considered one of the indications that the insurance companies will agree with. Whether the subset of patients that we ought to target who have lower IgG levels or recurrent sinus infections or something like that, it would be nice to study that, but nobody's going to fund it. The problem too is, you know, I treat, I use uh, IMIG in patients. I've had some nice results in the adults. I like to look at it as sort of an anti-inflammatory thing. I'm not looking to, these people are not immune deficient, like the patients I took care of in my fellowship that had immune deficiencies. I just look at it as it probably blocks some of the autoantibody response. So you don't really need super high levels. It's unfortunate that it considered to be very expensive, which the intramusculars is actually not. It's not anywhere near the IV. I was just curious if you had any dramatic cases like where you gave IVIG yourself 
these years. And then like, oh my God, the kid really responded. Is there anything come off the top of your head? Like- we couldn't get access to it often enough to really have a good sample, but uh, maybe I've convinced uh, the insurance companies to let me use it 10 times. And none of those patients did all that well. We can get it if we've got true hypogammaglobulinemia or common variable immunodeficiency. In those patients, you're just stabilizing their IgG levels. So they get fewer sinus infections, but it doesn't fix their fatigue. All right. The last question I'm going to get to, because you've given me so much time and I appreciate it. I guess it's the new chapter in medicine, COVID-19 and potential CFS in young people. We're now nine months into this awful pandemic. It's been well-documented. And as you mentioned earlier, these children and teens get maybe mild cases. And then later on, on multi-inflammatory disease, you know, the awful cardiovascular things some of these kids are getting. What's your experience? How are you guys approaching it now that you're starting, I'm sure, to see some patients with this? We began with applying the principles that we've learned from the MECFS experience that anyone with that degree of severe fatigue probably has some orthostatic intolerance. So we've now seen four young adults since March who got sick with what looks like COVID or was confirmed to be COVID since March. And all of them have profound orthostatic intolerance from the beginning. It's not because they were lying around in bed. They had lightheadedness and fatigue and brain fog as their immediate initial symptoms. None of them needing to go into hospital. They all had a loss of sense of taste and smell. The differential for that in this last seven months is pretty tiny. They're all either college students, one's a PhD scientist who couldn't even make out the numbers on her bank statement. And the one young woman had a resting heart rate that was elevated at 91. And when we did the passive standing test, her peak heart rate reached 166 after 10 minutes. That's really extraordinary. One of the boys was a member of the Johns Hopkins cross-country team. He reached a heart rate. He went from 70 to 129, just standing there. Another kid, 159 on her resting heart rate. So that's why all these kids are complaining about heart racing. They're probably standing somewhere and this just starts to come on. Wow. What I've seen, I read a paper yesterday that was entitled Persistent Fatigue Following SARS-CoV-2 Infection is Common and Independent of the Severity of the Initial Infection. And I would agree with that. In fact, these patients we've been seeing with post-COVID prolonged symptoms and, and especially meeting the MECFS criteria with post-exertional malaise and brain fog, they've all had very mild illnesses that didn't take them into the hospital. This is so scary. But what I worry about is people aren't going to be doing standing tests and looking at these heart rate problems that are universal in the adults and kids with the MECFS. And the other thing is this paper concluded that the way we ought to treat them was with cognitive behavioral therapy, which is absolute nonsense. Right. So what are we doing? Like, let's say these kids that you just saw from Johns Hopkins, what are you recommending? We're trying to target their main symptoms. So actually two of the four had elevations in plasma histamine and we've put them on things that- Antihistamines? Yeah, antihistamines. And one of the kids you know, was on and off for a week at a time and he realized his cognitive function was better on the loratadine than when off it. Wow. Kind of interesting. We're also trying all of the medications that we use for orthostatic intolerance to bring their POTS under control with mixed success so far. We don't really have a clear pattern that works for each of them, but that's the, the thing that we'd like to pursue. Do you think this may have damaged 
We have in our neck the carotid receptors. Do you, I, I don't know. Does anybody ever looked at anything like that? You know, because that controls our blood pressure. So I remember from medical school, right? From physiology, that was like, a, yeah. Could the baroreceptors be dysfunctional immediately after a right, viral nerves? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know what's triggering it in any of the patients, COVID pandemic or not. That's what's so crazy that this epidemic has really, I mean, like AIDS, you know, I trained in the AIDS epidemic. That taught us so much about the immune system. I think this COVID is going to teach us so much about the neurocirculatory system, I guess. I hope. I think it's bringing a renewed sense of interest in these problems and that there should be some overlap that, that helps those who have ME-CFS. Well, I'm going to summarize now. Chronic fatigue syndrome exists in young people. So please, parents, pediatricians, family doctors, please be aware of it. It's heartbreaking. But thanks to amazing work like people like Dr. Peter Rowe and others, there is hope for these patients. And I urge any parent with a child suffering with this condition to find the best medical care possible. I think with telehealth now, it's opened up so much possibilities to reach the best specialists around the country. And again, I want to thank Dr. Peter Rowe so much for taking the time out of his busy schedule to educate all of us about this disease. Thanks very much. Thanks, Dr. Rowe. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com. 